0: Welcome to Season 2 of My Favourite Item, Unravelling Brisbane's History Piece by Piece, brought to you by Brisbane's Living Heritage Network, a membership-based organisation promoting more than 80 heritage places and museums dedicated to sharing Brisbane's story. In each episode, join me as we step inside a different Brisbane-based cultural heritage collection to learn more about this city's rich and unique history. If you're a first time listener, you may want to start back at season one, but each episode tells its own special story. I'd like to welcome John Wright, Managing Director of MacArthur Museum to the podcast. Hi John.
1: Oh hello, Kirsten. Welcome to MacArthur Museum.
0: Many of our listeners may be familiar with the name General Douglas MacArthur, but perhaps not so with the MacArthur Museum itself. We're sitting in the MacArthur Museum today to record the podcast, and I have to say the building itself is really, really impressive, it's immaculate. And also the building was really, really important during World War II. Can you tell me and our listeners what happened here?
1: Well, first of all, about the building itself. Building itself was one of three headquarters, if you like, for the big mutual providence societies, National Mutual, and the final one of those, which was, they started in 1926. But this was the last of them and it bordered on the Great Depression. And it was actually the AMP's headquarters and they decided to continue building it as a sign of confidence both in the AMP and in Queensland itself. And as the final one of the triumvirate, it was probably the most impressive of the three. And one of the features of it was the fact that it was the first commercial building in Brisbane that had reinforced concrete for the roof and also for the floors. And in 1942, it was decided that the headquarters of the whole South West Pacific area, which was commanded by General Douglas MacArthur, was going to move from Melbourne to Brisbane to be closer to where the operations in the South West Pacific were going on. At that time, then, the Commonwealth government requisitioned a number of buildings like school buildings and commercial buildings around Brisbane and this was one of them. A team that came up from Melbourne decided that this was the ideal fit as far as the overall headquarters. It was large enough to accommodate all but the army land command component of the southwest Pacific and also it had the benefit of the reinforced concrete. It was also going to have the benefit of air conditioning and indeed when you look at the office that became MacArthur's, it slotted for air conditioning. Unfortunately for MacArthur, that was one item that was deleted as a result of the depression and so he, like the AMP directors, had to open the windows to get fresh air.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the collection that is in this building? How many items are in the collection and what do you hold?
1: In terms of exact items, I know this may sound strange, but we probably can't tell you exactly. There are three areas that we look at. The first of these is Brisbane at War, and that's about what it was like living in Brisbane. Things like rationing clothing, food, fuel, All those sort of things. The other was about the what was perceived uh, as the actual threat. So you had air raid warnings and air raid wardens, the restrictions on people when um, the air raids actually sounded. There was only one false alarm in about August of '42, but. Uh, other than that they were pretty lucky and as a result our collection is is based around the, the theme of Brisbane at war, the war in the southwest pacific and a little bit about MacArthur himself and the people who actually occupied this building.
0: I know that when I visited you a couple of weeks ago, we went around to the museum and talked about a few items. And I know from experience that choosing one item is particularly tough, but we did choose one. What item have you selected as your favorite to talk about today?
1: The one I thought was most interesting, and as I'll explain later, has a little bit of a personal side to it as well, is the control yoke, the port control yoke, of the batty bomber that Admiral Yamamoto was in when he was shot down and killed. Now, the significance of that is that it brings together a whole series of different aspects of the war in the Southwest Pacific. As we might discuss further, Yamamoto himself was a crucial figure as far as the Japanese It also talks then of the whole strategy that the Japanese had adopted through the early years of the war. It talks about the activities of the codebreakers and the level of, I suppose you would probably call it antipathy, between a number of the different branches of the Allied codebreaking services. It talks also of the operations of the Coast Watchers because the Coast Watchers were actually used as the, from the Japanese point of view, as the villains in the piece in keeping the Allies informed of Yamamoto's move. I think the other thing about it is that by virtue of the fact that there are only two of these control yokes and the other one's missing, this one has a, a value as being effectively unique at the moment. And finally, I think the other thing that makes it a favorite of mine is the fact that i spent so much time on it trying to find out the the background or rather the provenance because control yokes uh, for betty bombers were at the end of world war ii something like a dime a dozen they were everywhere and uh, so it's exceptionally important to be able to nail this one down as actually the one that came from yamamoto's aircraft otherwise it would have had very little significance and for early research indicated that this item or the original the real item the port control yoke had been cut from the aircraft the wreckage of the aircraft in about mid-year of 1969 and the research at that stage showed from a number of different sources that the people who had done that were from 183 recon flight, Royal Australian Air Force. And then this didn't gel terribly easily with the fact that the person who had donated it was a retired Lieutenant Colonel of the Australian Army Aviation Regiment. And it took an enormous amount of effort and so many brick walls to run into because the tendency was that once one person had said that it was RAAF, All subsequent writings repeated that fact, but as it turned out, in fact, what happened is that I happened to be reading through, I think it was Trove, and stumbled across an obituary to the person who donated it. And as I read through it, it was one of those eureka moments when I saw that uh, he was actually a section commander with 1A3 recon flight. Recon flight wasn't RAAF. It was, in fact, Australian Army Aviation Regiment. As it turned out, he had been the section commander there, had been given the control yoke and more or less forgot about it because um, later on his widow was to say that it had been sitting in the garage for something like from about the 1970s onward and uh, it was only in about the early 2000s that he thought well perhaps somewhere else is a better spot for it. And so the control yoke then has uh, quite a provenance and an amazing sort of um, significance in that it draws together so many different aspects of the campaign in the South West Pacific.
0: As someone who doesn't really know a lot about military transport, what is a control yoke and why was this aircraft shot down?
1: Well, a control yoke looks something like a steering wheel mounted on a pole. And you turn the wheel in much the same way as you do in a car to go left and right. And you either pull the whole assembly towards you, which means you go up, or you push it away from you, which means you go down. And that's the basic idea of the control yoke. Why was the aircraft shot down? Well, because Admiral Yamamoto Isakura, the Commander-in-Chief of the, uh, the Combined Fleet of the Imperial Japanese Navy, was a passenger in that aircraft.
0: Tell me more about the Admiral. Why was he such an important target?
1: Quite a long story actually, but it went back a long time because um, Yamamoto came to command the combined fleet of the Imperial Japanese Navy at a time when the Japanese were thinking that a war with the United States was inevitable. The concept that had evolved was that the Japanese would strike south and get the raw materials out of French Indochina, British and Malaya, the Dutch East Indies oil and the United States in the Philippines. And uh, it was fairly obvious that if you were going to take on the two largest naval powers in the world at that time, you were going to have to expect that they would react fairly violently. The biggest threat the Japanese felt it was the U.S. Navy uh, the Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor and the original concept had been that they would fight the U.S. Fleet off the Philippines. Yamamoto believed that this was far too dangerous. The outcome of that could very well go against the Japanese and then in the first few months of the war, the war would be lost. Yamamoto, unlike most Japanese, had the option of spending quite a bit of time overseas. He spent months and months in the United States. He visited London for a naval conference, probably more so than most of his Japanese contemporaries in significant military and naval postings. He was aware of what the Japanese were taking on. And so it was he who came up with the concept of a massive strike to start the war, which would effectively neutralize the U.S. Pacific fleet. He's quoted as saying that he could give the Japanese six months in which they would run amok in Southeast Asia. But after that, he couldn't guarantee any. And so what he was looking for was that massive strike. And Pearl Harbor was to be that. And he fought for the attack on Pearl Harbor. And he and his staff officers, Fushida, planned that in incredible detail. The more you look at the operation, that it wasn't just an operation that was planned over six months. Some of the key factors of that were being looked at and trialled 12 months before the actual attack. The pr- patterns were being set up that far in advance. Yamamoto had worked it out so that the timing was precise, just like the outbreak of the Russo-Japanese War, when the Japanese attacked simultaneously Port Arthur in the Pacific and declared war in St. Petersburg uh, in Europe, uh, the plan was to attack Pearl Harbor moments after declaration had been given to the Americans in Washington. Uh, the timing of that went out, and Yamamoto was very concerned about that because he believed, and he was right, that. The prospect of a negotiated peace after that, which was part of the Japanese plan, would be blown once and for all. The Americans would never uh, accept a peace after what they would see as a cowardly attack. Yamamoto was public enemy number one as far as the United States were concerned.
0: So he had a pretty big target on his back?
1: Very, very large.
0: If we go back to the beginning of this story, how did the American military know that the Admiral's plane would be in that precise location? And what role did Brisbane play in that story?
1: This is where the whole thing about the codebreakers come in. And the codebreakers played an enormous part in the war on the Pacific. Because it wasn't just shooting down Yamamoto that they were central to, but warnings about the Coral Sea Battle and particularly significant the Battle of Midway were also... Of their a radio operator, mm-hmm. some about, about 15 kilometres outside of Townsville, uh, picked up a signal which was in a Japanese army code, which had been used for some time and into which the Allies had made significant inroads in terms of decoding it. And he started to decode it, realised that this was something of importance. It was sent to Brisbane to the Central Bureau, who also did some work on it. Then it became apparent that this signal was, if you like, a crib for another message. And a crib, in code-breaking terms, was a message from which you knew an answer that you could compare with another signal that you didn't know the answer to. And this was actually the case because this older army code gave them the opportunity to look into the Japanese Naval Code 25D, which was still in the process of being broken. So, from all that is the Fleet Radio Unit in Melbourne, which started to break the, this and then sent it to the Fleet Radio Unit in the Pacific, which was based at Pearl Harbor. Subsequently, the role of both the Australian wireless interceptors, uh, Central Bureau and Frommel uh, has been erased and credit for it has very largely gone to the Hawaii group, which I suppose desperately needed some good news because they hadn't had much since the outbreak of the war. Um,
0: What did the code actually tell the Allied forces?
1: What it did is it had the itinerary. Or Admiral Yamamoto Japanese by this stage had suffered a number of reverses that had Coral sea which was sometimes called a draw but they'd been stopped from doing what could wanted Midway was a disaster for them Guadalcanal Canal was little better and so Yamamoto had conceived this idea of going around to the forward areas and boosting the Japanese morale and so this signal gave the itinerary that he was to follow. And he was basically, he was going to leave from an airport just outside of And on this particular occasion, he was going to fly to a small island airbase at Valolay. And it was so small, in fact, the airport took up virtually the entire island. And for years beforehand, it had been deserted. And so the Japanese, actually started building an airfield there.
0: Take us through that day, his final day, what happened?
1: Well, essentially, Yamamoto had arrived in Rabaul. Well, he actually had a headquarters here. He was due to take off at 6am in the morning and Yamamoto was remarkably punctual. He was one of those people that things had to happen exactly on time. And so his aircraft left at exactly... 6 a.m. It was flying on a more or less direct route. At 6:25 a group of 16 aircraft from the US Army Air Force took off from Guadalcanal and took a roundabout route to avoid detection by the Japanese watchers and they then intercept Yamamoto's aircraft Four of the fighters were designed to take care of the two bombers that Yamamoto and his chief of staff were occupying. The rest of the US aircraft were to take care of the escort. Within a few moments, Two in particular had shot down, first of all, Yamamoto's aircraft and then secondly his chief of staff. Therein started a controversy that lasted well into the 21st century and it was only in 2006 when virtually all those involved in the event had died that it was finally resolved. But there's still a great deal of controversy over who shot the aircraft down. And in that regard, the aircraft had been visited by a number of people including a doctor Charles Darby who lives in Brisbane and did an analysis of the damage to the aircraft and compared that with the autopsy report and confirmed the view that Lieutenant Tex Barber had been the one who actually shot Yamamoto down despite the earlier claim of his immediate superior Captain Lanphier who even broke radio silence on the way back to say I got him and for that was reprimanded because it gave an indication that the Allies knew who they were after.
0: How did the world react to this particular event?
1: In the US there was jubilation because At one stage, Yamamoto had been misquoted as saying that he was going to take the terms of American surrender up to the Capitol building, and uh, now people were saying, well, you're not going to do that. So the Americans were very, very uh, happy about it. Allies in general were happy because Yamamoto had a reputation as probably the most innovative thinker amongst the Japanese high command. And the Pacific War, of course, was going to be predominantly a naval war, and so the most senior Japanese naval commander was going to be a significant person in that. Indeed, it's said that President Roosevelt, before authorising made two stipulations. One was, first of all, could they guarantee that whoever took over the role was going to be less competent than Yamamoto? And secondly, that they could disguise the fact that the code breaking of the Japanese code. The first, they came back with the answer that Yamamoto was out and away the most brilliant of the Japanese commanders. And secondly, they then blamed the coast watchers or credited the coast watchers for citing him as he was landing in
0: You've spoken a little bit about an autopsy that I'm assuming was performed by the Japanese and his body was recovered by the Japanese?
1: There were actually two autopsies. He was shot down on the 18th of April and the next day a Japanese army patrol arrived and removed the bodies. Yamamoto, there was an sort of immediate autopsy, which was heavily doctored for property purposes, which said that in fact he had not been wounded at all and that uh, he'd been thrown from the aircraft, he was sitting upright as though he was in thought and his body was untouched. Uh, the other one that was done a little bit later by a more senior naval surgeon said that yes, he'd been killed by machine gun fire. The Japanese were trying very hard to minimise this. They didn't actually release the fact that he'd been killed until the 21st of May, which was over a month later. He was immediately promoted to Marshal Admiral, which is the Japanese equivalent of Admiral of the Fleet, and then a massive funeral ceremony. He was uh, regarded as a national hero, and this was a, a national disaster, really, as far as the Japanese were concerned. So you've
0: touched on this throughout the interview. Clearly the aircraft was left where it fell. How did the MacArthur Museum come in possession of the control yoke.
1: Well, this was the work of 183 recon flight. To put it in context, of course at that stage, New Guinea wasn't an independent country. It was under Australian jurisdiction. It's thought that the local patrol officer at Buen, which was a little distance from where the aircraft actually crashed, it's thought that uh, he was present at the time of the removal of the yokes. There is a photograph uh, in a book called Rust in Peace, which shows the starboard side, which was cut further up the post and it's thought that at that stage the local patrol officer gave one of the yokes to we think Lieutenant or Captain not quite sure, Tom Rivera and that's the one that came to us and the other one went to a local air museum. Uh, We've tried to find out where that one is at the moment and had any success Uh, So disappeared into some collection somewhere or other. From Tom Rivera, Captain that uh, control yoke in his garage. He actually became commanding officer of the Aviation Regiment. I think he was chairman of the the Aviation Museum or something. And he decided, in conjunction with his committee, that really the Aviation Regiment, their only contribution being to chop it out of the aircraft. And so it was better suited somewhere else. And so it came in.
0: Why is it so significant?
1: It's significant virtually entirely because of its association with Yamamoto. There were literally hundreds of these, no, it may even be thousands of these goats lying around the Pacific either on top of the water under the water where wherever. So the significant feature is about Yamamoto himself and the role that he played. It's probably difficult for us to understand that somebody could have such an influence over the, his entire country and to have become something of a bogeyman, if you like, for the Allied powers in the Pacific. And so it was seen as a major contribution to um, the Allied victory. And even though the war had advanced and there was confidence that the Allies were going to win, it was still early enough in the war for people to realise that it was going to be a long time.
0: Thank you for listening to My Favourite Item, Unraveling Brisbane's History Piece by Piece. We hope you've enjoyed discovering more about John's favourite item, which I add is a significant one, both for our own and world military history. If you want to learn more about Douglas MacArthur's time in Brisbane, Brisbane during World War II, or actually see the control yoke in person, I know that the MacArthur Museum is closed at the moment, just like every museum in Australia, but when you reopen can you let people know who are listening how they can actually visit the museum?
1: Yes. We're open Tuesdays, Thursdays and Sundays between 10am and 3pm, although we take in our last admissions at 230
0: And we might have some teachers actually listening to this program. Do you have an education program that students can access?
1: Yes, we do. We do have quite a number of schools that do access the museum. We like to have a talk to them beforehand because we have a number of Ways in which we can tailor things to particular topics that they have.
0: Thanks for joining me, John. Have you liked this episode? Think about leaving a comment, subscribing, or sharing this podcast on your social media platforms. What be the next favourite item? Tune into the next episode to find out.